Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, my guest on today's podcast is a returning guest, um, David Cook and his wife, Kathleen Cook, were on episode 223 in January of 2020. Um, they talked about service missions. Um, David Cook um, also wrote chapter nine of my book, Manifesting Love and Politics is the name of the chapter he wrote. It's part of my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. David is someone I deeply respect, and um, he won't like me talking about his church bio because we're trying to kind of not do that too much, but I think it's fine that you know he presided over the Chile-Santiago South Mission from 2013 to 2016. He's been a stake president. He's been in Area 70. And I believe you live in up somewhere in New York. I, which city do you live in, David? We are just outside of Rochester. We're kind of in between Rochester and Palmyra. And we're recording this on a beautiful August day. I assume it's green and beautiful outside. It is. This is the time of year I wish I lived where you lived. Um, listeners, we're trying in this podcast to obviously build bridges and bring sort of stories that we don't traditionally hear sometimes in our Latter-day Saint community to listeners. And you listeners are courageous enough to hear these stories. And I love Elder Cook's um, comment in General Conference, Unity and Diversity. We did a podcast that's released about a month ago from Gene Grant. It's episode 554. He's a active Latter-day Saint in his late 60s who's a Democrat and sort of talked about why he's a Democrat and why that fits as a Latter-day Saint. It wasn't a podcast to if you're not a Democrat, to convert you to be a Democrat, it was a podcast to try to build bridges. Um, since that time, I've had a couple people reach out um, and to bring more forth more stories. And David Cook is one of those individuals that has identified, obviously, as a committed Latter-day Saint and as a Democrat throughout his life. And I thought it would be great to have David come on the podcast. He's in his 60s. He's been on this road for a long time both as a Latter-day Saint and as a Democrat, and has a long view of this road and perhaps will help some of you that are um, liberal or Democrat or however to use that vocabulary. David may help us and be a Latter-day Saint and just feel you're not alone and there's principles that apply to you. And perhaps those of you that are conservative and are a different party would just be willing to listen just to see how we can find unity and diversity and common ground. Because to me, Zion isn't that our congregations extension of our political party it's that we have unity even within our political differences and look at those as actually a good thing to help us accomplish more than if we were all the same so i'll if that's okay for an introduction david i don't know if you want to clarify anything or no I'll, that's fine i'll just turn it to you to run with it well i i thought um i don't necessarily want this to be about me but um let me kind of start with sort of my own oh, political coming of age, roots, biography, that sort of thing. And um, because both, frankly, religion and politics tends to be to some degree or another in our DNA. Um, and I, I grew up in a home where my mom, um, she was the granddaughter of Orson F. Whitney, member of the Twelve. Um, ironically, her parents neither were active in the church at the time she was born, or um, really for most of their adult lives. They were what they were what was called the lost generation, which was the the children of the 
the uh, next generation that were born around the time of statehood and and um, you know just kind of got pulled into the world a little bit. So on the one hand, on the one side, I've got my mom, and in fact, her her name is Helen Mar Whitney, and uh, that's a pretty prevalent name in in church history. And my great grandfather, Grandpa Whitney, um, was asked to give her a name and a blessing because my grandfather wasn't um, able to do it, um, wasn't worthy. And so he came to the meeting and they picked out a name and gave it gave it to him and he took her up to the front and you know, just decided it was going to be Helen Marr and not what her parents had uh, wow. had selected. And so, you know, and she was just a marvelous woman. She was kind of, she was quiet in her own right, but just an amazing writer and received all kinds of awards, um, published thousands of poems and books and just really a remarkable, um, quiet, gentle woman. Um, my dad, on the other hand, he, uh, he was a convert to the church. He joined the church as a teenager. His mother was from old pioneer stock, and his father was um, part of the influx of the Gentiles working on the railroad to Ogden. And he was a proud Presbyterian, and and uh, so my dad kind of um, alternated going to the LDS Church and the Presbyterian Church. He had a brother that was about nine years older than him, who was also had joined the church. And when it came time for him to go on a mission, when he became of age, the bishop. Unlike today, where you have a very formalized process, the bishop just knocks on the door and says to my grandfather, I'd like to talk to you about your son serving a mission. And my grandfather essentially threw the bishop out of the house and said, no son of mine will ever serve a mission for this church. Wow. And so my dad kind of, you know, he was like maybe 10 years old at the time, and and he's growing up thinking that's not going to be an option for me. And uh, but 10 years later, the same bishop. Uh, comes and knocks on the door again, this time perhaps a little bit more trepidation. <laughs> and I'm just grateful that he had that bravery to come. And he knocks on the door, and my grandpa opens the door, and he says to the bishop, you know, one of the worst things I ever did was not allow my older son to serve a mission. In the meantime, he was a, a um, supervisor at the American Can Company, and he had worked with a number of uh, return missionaries and, and was so impressed by him. And so he said, absolutely, my my son, my dad, Ernest, could serve. And so my dad, never having even thought about it was a possibility, suddenly finds himself um, in the mission field. And he is called to the Eastern States Mission. He actually served in a couple of places in our stake and certainly in the, in the upstate New York area and um, really had a profound experience. Um, he, he came home from his mission and the first Sunday home, he met my mother at Mutual, which was in those days not for young kids, but more for adults. And um, he went home and he said to my grandmother, I've met the woman I'm going to marry. And a week later, he's in boot camp and for World War II. And, and uh, he ends up being a, what they called a LDS group leader 
for all the LDS soldiers. And in that process, he, he developed a friendship with UB Brown. And they became lifelong friends and corresponded um, for years, not, not too long ago. We found the correspondence. We've actually just recently donated it to BYU. But um, so UB Brown, who was also a very prominent Democrat during that era of the church, was somewhat of a a mentor to my father, and so my dad really kind of followed in those footsteps, and he was deeply engaged in the civil rights movement. In the NAACP, he was, I don't know if it was the first, but he was one of the first white members of the NAACP in Ogden. Wow. And I, I remember specifically as a kid, um, he worked for the federal government, and, you know, if you were a if you were a government worker and you were a member of the NAACP, you were kind of suspect. This is the McCarthy era. And I can remember him kind of being his friends coming to, the, to our pulling in our carport. My dad would kind of go out the back in the dark and lay down in the back of his car. And then they'd take him to the meeting place and he'd sneak in through the back door. Um, and so growing up in our home, it was dinner time was the time to discuss the issues of the day. And, you know, this is the early 60s when I start remembering these things. And so, you know, it's it's McCarthyism, it's Vietnam War, it's the John Birch Society, which was, you know, pretty prominent at that time. Um, and in my dad's view, religion was our eternal, our eternal salvation and politics was our temporal salvation. And he didn't shy away from the the good things that politics could do. Um, I remember our our Sunday dinners were dad kind of grilling us in a, in a pleasant way, but grilling us on what we were taught in priesthood and Sunday school, and where he felt that there was you know maybe false doctrine or <laughs> inappropriate things taught. He had no concern to to kind of correct those things. And it was, it was kind of a fun time. Um, but there was always, it wasn't blood sport for my dad. And I remember I was probably in about third grade when we did a mock election where they handed out to us the, the sample ballot for that, that election that year. And, and I look at it and my dad's name is on the ballot for city council and i went home and i said are you, you're running for city council and he said well i'm just gonna fill on a spot and i'm not campaigning um the democrats aren't going to win and so i'm just doing a favor and filling a spot but later he told me a story where um it had come to him some information about his opponent that was would have destroyed this man, would have destroyed it in the name of, in, in the eyes of the community and his family. Some really salacious information would come to him. And, and uh, I said, so what would you do? And he said, nothing. And uh, I was like, why? You know, I'm thinking, I'm playing Little League at that time. I'm, you know, competitive. And, and, and he said, I, I never forget, we're in the car driving, and he just said, some things are more important than winning elections. Wow. And uh, I wasn't going to be party destroying somebody's integrity. Well, that's kind of an attitude that seems to have gone the way of um, the dodo bird. 
So, you know, that was kind of my younger years. And then I get to, you know, high school and my interests were um, not politics. Uh, they were essentially baseball and skating. And um, I was a very late bloomer. I recently found my old report card, and I think I graduated with about a 1.8. <laughs> and but I did ski 60 times a season. Usually, I was on the Arden High School ski team, and you know, just had a great time, wonderful time. Um, I remember the first time I voted, 1976. I was a freshman in college, and I was on my way skiing. And um, I'd finished my morning classes, and a buddy and I were headed up to Snow Basin to ski, and we stopped to vote at the polling, at the bowling, the polling uh, place. And I, I remember walking into the, the, the booth and like going, I don't know anybody that's running. And I'm like, well, let's see. Dad's a Democrat. I guess I am. And I just marked the one box and got out of there and went skiing. And I didn't think much about politics, really, at that point. Um, well, probably about six or eight months later, I get called on my mission, and I am called to the New York City Spanish-speaking mission. And, um, you know, in fact, there's a great book I just read called uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, the Bronx is Burning. It's about New York City in that 76, 77 time frame, which was really the low point of New York City on a lot of reasons. And for the first time in my life, and I was Spanish-speaking, um, so I was in the worst ghettos of the city. And you take a white kid out of Ogden and drop him in the middle of, the, of Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn or some of those places, and it's a real wake-up call. And But for me, it was it was such a marvelous experience on just so many levels. Um, and I remember seeing members of the ward, our Spanish units, and they were from all over the country, all over the world. You know, so you learn Spanish dialects from everywhere. But I, I remember occasionally there'd be an immigration raid on a factory where a bunch of members worked and they'd all you'd go to church and you know, half, the, half the branch is gone and give them a couple of weeks and, and they'd be back. And, and, and I just came to see I, I had a real re negative reaction to people that referred to the poor and immigrants as lazy welfare recipients because I saw people that were working harder than, harder than anybody I know I and people that. that loved me and brought me in and you know took me from a scared kid from northern Utah and helped me through an understanding of the ghetto. And so my mission really uh, changed my life in just a whole bunch of ways. So I, I came home from my mission. I rolled back to college. I'm, I'm kind of a little more politically aware. Um, I'm at Weber State. And kind of I wake up academically. I ended up graduating with a, with a summa cum laude with a pretty high GPA. And, um, but during that period of time, I had... I think I went through, and I think it's pretty common, I went through what I would call my angry young man phase, you uh -huh. know, where I was angry at the man, you know, and, and you know, I just really angry at, at injustice. And um, I I was hired by Utah Legal Services as a, as a um, paralegal 
doing outreach mainly to the immigrant communities in northern Utah, typically working on uh, fruit farms up in in, um, in northern Utah. And same thing, I just had marvelous experiences working with people that were just kind of behind in the shadows. I remember as a kid driving up Highway 89, my parents would go buy fruit and can it, and all that time I never saw those laborers. And and yet I learned in college right behind those fruit stands where they lived and some of the housing problems that they experienced. And so it, it kind of sort of an additional awakening. And then I worked for the legislature for a period of time, and then um, – I actually, there was a competitive internship my senior year, and uh, the way Weber State did it is they would interview those that were interested, and they'd rank you, and then you got the chance to choose between the three internships, which were Jake Garn, Warren Hatch, and Jim Hansen. And um, Jake Garn at the time was off doing the space space shuttle. Uh, Hatch was pretty young and, you know, kind of a whippersnapper and well-liked, but kind of a firebrand. And Jim Hansen had beat my had my dad's, one of my dad's closest friends, Gun McKay, and I'm like, I can't go to work. I can't do an internship with Hansen. My dad was home. But I still remember being at dinner with my parents and my wife and my brother, I think, and his wife. And announcing to them that I accepted an internship in DC with Orr Hatch. And their jaws just dropped open. And my dad just turned at me with complete, you know, he was joking, but with just complete deadpan luck. And he said, Well, even God lost a third of his children. And uh, <laughs> so, but I had a great experience, I had a really marvelous experience. Um, finished. I finished law school or finished undergraduate um, major in political science with minors in English and Spanish and philosophy and enrolled at uh, BYU for a joint degree in MPA and master's in public administration and law degree. And, you know, BYU law school wasn't really necessarily known as a liberal bastion. And, um, but it was interesting, the faculty, when I was there, was fairly liberal um, as compared to the student body. And after our, during our first semester, we just, there was a group of us that kind of coalesced that were kind of identified as the sort of the liberal contingent of our class. And we, um, we became known as the fun bunch and we just had a ton of fun. And there to this day, we're still in contact. They're all faithful members of the church. Almost all of them, you know, are, are Democrats and have served in as bishops and state presidents and, you know, a variety of callings and just wonderful, wonderful people that we supported each other. So we, we graduate, we we come to New York and I'm I'm still kind of in my in my angry young man phase to a degree. And I remember one day opened in the newspaper, and there had been a small group of people in Forsyth County, Georgia, on Martin Luther King Day, who had um, engaged in a uh, in a protest because Forsyth County had it was it was one of the only counties in the Atlanta area that still was an all white county, 
And so this small group from the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center and the King Center had done um, a civil rights march, and they were attacked, brutally attacked. And it was across the papers all over the country. And I said to Kathleen, I, I, I got to go down there. And um, I got a ticket, and the next weekend, I flew to, to Georgia. And, you know, I'd been in touch with the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center and trying to figure out what to do. And I, I fly into Atlanta, and, and um, I knew they were having a rally that was called at the West Hunter Baptist Church, which is this iconic black church in Atlanta. And I, and I take a cab there, and I, I walk in, and there's maybe, it, it's packed, you know, and it's all um, black Americans and maybe, I don't know, a dozen white guys. And I just kind of try to sneak in the back and noticed, and and um, it was an incredibly moving experience. And so I'm I'm watching some of the icons of the movement, you know, Coretta Scott King and John Lewis and um, others that were speaking. And as it ended, I stayed there in the back, and John Lewis came walking down the aisle, and he saw me. And I was right on the, on the aisle, and uh, I think you could tell I was feeling a little uncomfortable, maybe, a little out of place. And he just looked at me and smiled and said, thank you. And then at the end, they said, anybody needs a place to stay, come on up. We'll set you up with the family. So I do. I spend the night with his family. The next morning, we, we uh, drive down to the place where the the march is going to start. And the previous week, it was it was maybe 40 people that showed up for the small march. There were 20,000 people that showed up that Saturday. And I ended up in a car with some real well-known figures, black and white, in the in the in the civil rights movement. And we started talking, and there was one this one guy in particular who was a, a Jewish labor organizer from New York City. And we're chatting and, and just getting to know each other. And, and, and he turned to me and he said, he said, Dave, you're a Mormon, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, why are you here? <laughs> you know, and, and I said, and I told him a little bit, just kind of my family background and, you know, how I just felt I needed to be here. And we corresponded for a while. He since has passed away, but he really was an icon. But it, it was probably the first time being outside of Utah, feeling that the perception of the national perception of us as a people, and you know, for good reasons, was not what I had hoped it would be. And so Finished that experience, came home. Um, I was pretty engaged politically um, with the local Democratic Party, worked on a number of, of um, campaigns and doing some stuff. And, and then I, I started getting a little disenchanted, um, not with the party, but with some of the people, some of the people that were vying for political power position. And one night, Kathleen said to me, so um, why don't you take a break or something else for a while? And we'd actually gone to the 
there's a iconic George Eastman house in Rochester that shows old movies. And we had never seen Mr. Smith goes to Washington and they were playing it. So we went down and watched it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe I should. And then like a week later, there was an article in our local paper about Habitat for Humanity. And I, they had just gotten started. They built the first house. And I called um, the president that was mentioned in the article. And I said, hey, introduce myself. And I said, is there anything I can do? And he said, what are you doing for lunch? I said, I don't have any plans. He said, let me come and get you. So he gets me and we drive around the city. And Rochester had a really challenging history. Um, it was the first city in the United States where race riots broke out. Um, and section of the city burned, terrible housing problems, <clears throat> redlining. Um, Rochester had, it was progressive in a lot of ways. And there was a there was pro progressive white liberals that were very involved with civil rights. But when it came time to really engage, the black leadership said, this is our fight. You know, you need to give us space for our fight. Long story short, I get involved with Habitat. And I don't know, a year, two years later, I get elected. Um, the president of the board and um, wonderful experience and the day I was elected the night I was elected president of the board we had come home from that meeting and the phone rang and it was the state president and he said I'd like to come and visit with you and your wife and I said fine I had no premonitions no idea I'm so he comes over and he sits down and he says, um, I'm, I want to call you to be the Bishop of the Ward. I was, I don't know, 30 years old. And um, I said, President, I was just elected to this position. What should I do? And I kind of expected he would say, well, you'll need to resign from that. You can't do it all. And he didn't. He said, no, don't resign. It sends the wrong message to the community and the wrong message to the board. I don't know how you'll do it, but it's going to work out. Wow. And we had two little kids. I was a young associate in a big law firm with a demanding career and bishop. And somehow they were marvelous years and it worked out. Um, I finished my term as Habitat and um, with Habitat. And then I, I planned and kind of, in, and, and I frankly, because of kind of things my dad had said growing up, I didn't whisper a word of politics pub publicly while I was bishop, not a word. And I was very vigilant about that. And um, and then I got called the state president, served as state president for another 10 years. And the only thing I did politically during that period is, is I helped on a, lit a litigation matter for our local congresswoman and um, a redistricting challenge. Um, and then I was called as an Area 70. The day I was released as an Area 70, 2008, that same Congress Congresswoman, literally the day I was released, I don't know how she knew, but she called me and she said, I understand you're free now. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I am. And so she pulled me back in and I you know, was pretty involved. And then a year later, we got called 
as uh, bishop president. And when we came home, I knew kind of that, you know, callings of that nature were, uh, were in the past. And so I engaged pretty heavily in the uh, political game. Um, ran for town board a couple of times, not with any any visions of, of being able to win because we live in a very Republican town, but just to give people a, a voice. And in fact, my my best friend who followed me as state president, he had just been released and we ran together for the town board. Wow. And uh, we both lost, but uh, we had fun doing it. Uh, and now politically, I serve as the general counsel for the local county democratic committee, which involves ballot access kinds of issues and some litigation. It's been a lot of fun. Um, so that's kind of sort of my, probably too much on my pedigree, but the, the advice I would give to young people. Thanks for good. That was terrific, Dave. Um, Thank you. From all of our listeners, that was great. And I love just how you um, did all this church service and did this political work and Manage both of those. It sounds like when you were serving in your church assignments, you weren't um, political, so to speak, and trying to um, be neutral that our local leaders are asked to be. Um, I love the story of you being in, and I think Atlanta for that for that rally, um, and just getting on that plane and saying, "I got to be there," and walking to that church, and those couple of experiences in the car, and as that leader walked down the aisle and said, thank you for being here. That, for me, those were really touching. You know, the, the best thing that came out of that, when we came, I came home, my, my oldest son, I think was in, he was in kindergarten or first grade, I can't remember which, I think it was kindergarten. And a few weeks later, he brings home from school this little booklet that the class had done about things that they were doing or learning. And on his little page, he writes, um, said, in January, um, we celebrated civil rights. And he said, my dad went to Atlanta to fight for people and their rights. And I'm like, I didn't even know he even figured that out. And to me, it was like, okay, that's worth it. <laughs> what a great legacy. Um, that's cool. That's really cool. I follow one of your sons. I think it's your son, Jared. I think he's one of your sons on Twitter. He's yeah. got a great Twitter account. And I don't know where he fits into all your sons, but. He's the oldest. He's he's the smart one, like his mom. <laughs> so. but he does a great job on Twitter and is one of my favorite follows. So anyway, keep, keep talking, Dave. So, you know. I'd like to, you know, my experience, just to maybe give people some, particularly young people who might be thinking about political engagement. Um, first is do your homework and be informed. Don't don't walk in to a battle without having the facts, particularly in this day and age when there is so much disinformation and. You know, I understand the need for civility. That's key. That that doesn't change. But civility does not trump truth. And 
we need to, I think, in today's world, be extraordinarily vigilant on truth. We're, we're in a time I, I don't think we've ever seen since the Civil War. And it's a, it's an awful playbook. And I can tell you, I know the brother and they're very concerned about some of the things that they see. Um, and I, I don't necessarily get into all, all of that, but the, the, one of the most important things, I think, politically is, is to avoid extremes. And that, you know, that to me goes right along with what Joseph Smith taught in proving contraries. Truth is made manifest. And be willing and humble enough to buck your own party on issues that you might feel strongly about. And when I say humble, I mean, get out President Benson's talk on humility and read it every once in a while. It's not political at all. I mean, I may have disagreed a lot with some of President Benson's political issues, but that issue was tremendous. Um, but be willing to kind of engage. And, you know, one of the one of the best stories I remember that kind of talks about that is kind of a humorous story. And, and you probably know, um, you probably know Oscar McCockey. Yes, uh, not personally, but yes. So Oscar Sr., not, not Oscar Jr., who passed away not too long ago. And I worked with him a fair amount representing the church on a couple of legal issues. Um, and, but his father gave this, this talk. I'm going to try, maybe hopefully I can find the quote. Um, he, uh, he basically said, you know, talking to his, to his children, um, here it is. Um, he said, sometimes you can't give ground. And he said, you know what? Sometimes the Republicans think God's on their side. And don't let them, don't concede that ground to them. They don't have a higher, uh, they don't have the higher ground than anybody else. And so it's important that, that you don't, don't let that get under your skin. Um, be willing to endure disapproval with grace and never respond in kind. You know, I, I was in a temple recommend interview once when I was state president, and the person on the other side of the desk at the end of the interview said to me, um, I understand you're a Democrat. I said, yes. And, and uh, she said, how can you have a temple recommend and be a Democrat? And I was like, I'm here signing your record <laughs> right now. And, and, and it ended up being a good talk. We had a good discussion about it, and it was sincere. It wasn't just kind of trying to dig, dig me. It was, it was a sincere question. Um, but also, you know, be, be faithful as a Latter-day Saint, and don't give anybody excuse to discount you or to presume that you're less committed in the gospel because of your political affiliation. I mean, I can give you a long list of faithful Latter-day Saint Democrats. Um, it's total nonsense to believe that political party has anything to do 
with faithfulness or righteousness. And realize even though, I think it might be a little bit harder in some places here, it's not an issue at all in, on the East Coast, but maybe in the Mormon corridor of Utah, Idaho, and, and Arizona, it might be a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, I think I ha I've had some missionaries, I never talked politics as a mission president. I've had a few missionaries, you know, been, I think maybe alarmed uh, by a few of my Facebook posts. Um, on most of them, we've had pretty good conversations. Um, but realize you're not alone. And, you know, today, especially in, in today's world, and be willing to stand up. But when you're serving in the church, you set aside any political differences. Um, and let me tell you a story about that. A couple of stories. The first one was my dad. Um, he had a state president, as I mentioned, who was somewhat influential in the conversion of my grandfather. And so my dad just admired him. He loved him. And he was a county commissioner in Weaver County. And this is 1968. Nixon was running. And um, I think I think Nixon may have, I think he paid a visit to President to the first presidency, as I recall. And so the state president, in his political role, kind of announced to the high council that they should tell the members that on their visits that the first presidency was endorsing um, um, Richard Nixon as, as presidential candidate. Well, my dad, being a good friend with Hubie Brown, immediately went home and called Elder, Elder Brown and said, you know, you got to put a stop to this. And, and sure enough, you know, the next morning a press release goes out. Wow. And, um, you know, that kind of gets shut down. But on a personal level, when I was called as, as bishop, there was a brother in a ward who was extraordinarily conservative. And uh, he'd been affiliated with the John Birch Society, and he was serving in a, a prominent calling. And I was trying to decide whether I would retain him in that, call, in that calling as a new bishop or, or not. And I... And I thought, you know, this I viewed him as so extreme politically that it just wouldn't be viable. And so I didn't retain him. And I later really regretted that because I worked with him in a number of other callings um, in the World Council. And we, we never really talked politics. But when the rubber hit the road, when people needed help, he was there. I was there, and our political differences never got in the way of that. And so don't allow those political differences to get, a, get in the way of a church service. Um, you know, I, I and for, for young people, let me give you maybe a, a little, little history. Um, my my great-grandfather... Um, served as a member of the Twelve, and he he was one of that generation that was kind of wavering in his earlier years. He wanted to be a great, he wanted to be an actor, and this wasn't in the days when you put your papers in and waited for a call. You had a call over the pulpit, and this call over the pulpit came, and he fully intended to take uh, the train out of Salt Lake and 
change trains in Chicago, go to New York City, and strike out in his desire to be an actor. And somewhere along the line, he um, he had a change of heart, went to the mission. He had a companion that was like, you know, 65 years old. He was 19 or something. And his companion kind of lectured him one day and just said, you know, he was he was serving as a correspondent to the Salt Lake Herald. And, um, you know, just really his heart wasn't in it. And his companion kind of hammered him one day and said, look, you know, go big or go home. And that night he had a life-changing uh, dream in which he saw the Savior in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was a powerful, powerful dream. And it changed his life. He stays in his mission. He, he comes home from his mission, and he decides he wants to engage politically. And so he doesn't know what party he should affiliate with. And there was kind of a party alignment going on at that time in, in Utah between the People's Party and the National Republican Party. And, uh, and so he he ends up uh, becoming a Democrat, reg registering as a Democrat. And he talks, he gives this talk at, at, the, at the Utah State Democratic Convention, and he explains the process of how he made that decision. And he concludes the talk, and he says, I sat down a student, and I rose up a Democrat. And the newspaper reported this. He said he spoke eloquently of the democratic theory of the rights of the common people as opposed to the Republican idea of centralized power in the hands of the upper classes, and said he believed with all his soul that God formed this government for the whole people not for the favored few. He believed the great fear of the future was the swollen money power, a tyranny worse to be dreaded than a tyrant king. And it was because he believed that the democratic ideas were opposed to that tyranny. That was one of the first things that attracted him to democracy. And so, wow. you know, to to you young listeners, maybe some of, your, some of the old ones as well, um, don't lose your sense of ideal, idealism. And um, the world needs you. And more than any other time. And today, there's there's some real serious litmus tests going on. And for me, one of them, frankly, is the notion of the stolen election. And I, I, I'm frankly quite surprised. You know, the, the brethren... I think they walk a very fine line, but if you can read the tea leaves, you know, Elder Oaks talking about the, the time comes of accepting elections, the things that the First Presidency have said and done and, and modeled in terms of vaccinations and mask wearing. And what we're seeing is, is, is something that I know they're concerned about, of people choosing political views over what the council that the brethren have given them. And, you know, everybody has a free agency. We understand that. But we're at a time where, yes, we respect people, but we don't have to respect ideas. There are certain ideas that don't deserve respect. Racism deserves no respect, period. 
Um, and, you know, we're at a time where we need young people to be willing to, to engage in that and with, with clarity, with reason, um, and with love. Um, and I, you know, I, I try, but sometimes I let my emotions get the best of me, but I really try. Um, and my wife kind of, she calls me down, calls me down sometimes <laughs> in some of those engagements. But I'm telling you, we need you. Um, now, don't allow, um, don't allow your perception that, you know, maybe there's somebody in your ward or your stake or, and there's, there's certainly people that, that maybe exercise some ecclesiastical abuse occasionally in, in the political arena. I think it's frankly rare. Um, and maybe it's just because I've lived away from the Intermountain West for so long. But don't allow that to happen. When you see someone who has stepped over the line, like the brother that spoke a few weeks ago, my heart just ached for him for some of the experiences that he'd had. And I, I just felt so bad because I've never had any. You know? And um, I don't, don't remain silent. But also, don't throw your fist in the air and scream and yell. Go to that bishop, go to that leader, go to that home teacher, whoever it might be, and talk to them and reason with them. Explain to them. And ultimately, you'll be right. Um, but it's going to be done with respect and with call. Otherwise, you never convince anybody. You know, they get their barriers up and it's over. Um, but stay engaged, stay involved. You'll have experiences, and and the other thing is, there there are some. There's no question that there's some public policy positions that the church has taken that um, may be different than what a political party has taken. But you know, I I did a lengthy analysis of that once, once, and um, if you take all the public pronouncements of the church in the last forty years. And you put them on the left side or the right side of the of the ledger, the political ledger. It's pretty even. They've been equal opportunity offenders on um, politically on a lot of issues. And don't let anybody kid you that it's not the case. And at the same time, know that the brethren, in my experiences, they are. There is not a single member of the twelve that I think would be viewed as a political extremist in any, on any issue. They struggle with the issues just as we do. And um, if, the, if it's, if, say they're taking a position that is, is contrary to where you are right now, be patient. Um, and let me just address the, that a little bit with another example from my dad. The, um, the prison restriction, that was a big deal when I was a kid and I, I, I was on my mission when the, when the uh, revelation came and I remember at the time we were teaching a black woman who had a, a white boyfriend 
And I remember writing my dad, and my dad was just, his letters were just legend in my mission. And I'd read them to other missionaries, and sometimes they'd say, hey, you know, ask your dad this question. And and they're just marvelous. And so I asked him this question. I said, we're teaching this woman. um, She's dating a, a white man. If they both join the church, can she be sealed to him? And he responded, and he said, no. So that's the current policy. But then he said, but I've had some, I have some strong, profound feelings on that topic. He said, I'll share them with you someday when I feel like you're, you're ready. And I was like, come on, I'm on my mission. I'm on my spiritual peak. You, know, you should be <laughs> willing to share. And that was probably a few months before the revelation. The day the revelation came, our word missionary called and told us, and I was a really super obedient missionary, kind of a little bit of a Nazi on, on the obedience side at times. And um, I didn't hesitate. I picked up the phone and called Dad. That's and, I, and, and he picked up the phone and he was weeping. And um, I said, is it true? He said, yeah. And then he told me, he said, I had friends, and I can name some names that some of you, particularly Salt Lake, would probably know. Um, friends who left the church over this issue. And some of them, I think, experienced the same experience I had. He, he said, I studied and fasted and prayed over this issue for years. And ultimately, I received one of the most profound personal spiritual um, personal revelations that was I would see the change in my lifetime and then it was peace be still keep this sacred to yourself and so he did and so all those years as he saw as he was engaged in the civil rights movement and he saw you know some of the racism issues in Utah that would come up um, all the while, he knew in his heart it was going to change. And um, he stayed in the trenches. And that's, to me, a profound example. And, and you know, we've got issues like that today. And I don't know what the church is going to look like in 10 years, in 15 years, or 20 years. But there may be issues today that, that trouble you. Um, there certainly are. Some that troubled me. Most most of the issues that troubled me today are cultural. And frankly, you know, I, I, that's not a problem. It's not a problem to have angst over a church policy that that doesn't necessarily fit right with you, sit well with you. That's part of spiritual maturity. And you know, believe me, the brethren don't all walk into a room and say we all agree. They they go back and forth and back and forth. And I've had long discussions with some of the senior brethren on on these issues. And, you know, the work goes forward, you know, two steps forward, a step back. Um, missionary work is an ongoing, you know, process to kind of hit the, hit it right. Um, and, you know, they, they're good men, not perfect, and women, not perfect, that are doing their very best and waiting for certain light and knowledge and sometimes they're seeking others sometimes they're waiting 
But if you disengage over some of the issues that are pretty prevalent in today's world, um, you lose the opportunity to have that positive influence. And the church needs you. It doesn't need your tithing. It doesn't need, I'm not saying don't pay tithing. I'm, I'm saying the church needs you. It needs your spirit. It needs your engagement. Um, and, it, you know, I, I look back on my 60 plus years and, you know, I was just such a goofball as a teenager. And I see the experiences I've had now and I see the hand the Lord and this golden thread that kind of weaves through it. And I see my mistakes and I see that some of the mentors I've had, I've had phenomenal mentors with my mission president, my father, um, um, Marlon Jensen, who I served as a counselor with when he was mission president here. Um, my state president, one of my dearest friends here. And I don't know a single one of them that has faced the church with blinders on. Every one of them is in the trenches and has their own personal spiritual battles and doctrinal battles and policy battles. My best friend and I, you know, we, we used to do a lot of backpacking together and we used to play this game called Profit for a Day. And we'd be in the tent or we'd be in, in a lean-to up in the Adirondacks and it was only, it never left the, left the lean-to. And it was, what would we do if we were a prophet for a day? And we solved all, we solved a lot of problems. <laughs> but it was just, you know, within our, in our own little kind of cabal. And yet, some of those problems have resolved themselves. And there's always going to be more. And the Lord needs you. Don't walk away. Don't step away from the battle. You're, you are so deeply loved and so deeply needed. So. I'm just so personally deeply touched, David, um, with your life story. And then you're talking directly to people that are working through complicated issues and your invitation to stay. Um, I wrote your father's name down in big capital letters on my notepad, Ernest Clayton Cook. And I'm thinking of him in the back seat of his car in Ogden as he went to the NAACP meeting, lying down to be safe, and his courage, and his wrestling with that, and the revelation, the personal feeling he got about that is, and peace be still, and and then that phone call he had with you during your mission about the priesthood revelation and what a day that would have been for your dad and many other people, yeah. you included. And you had been to the civil rights rallies. You've walked hand in hand with our black brothers and sisters looking for a better day. And then I look at um, NAACP people in the front seat of the car meeting, so to speak, with our first presidency and what we're doing as a church with the NAACP, which for someone with the long view like you, and if we could get your dad on the podcast, <laughs> I'm sure he would talk about, I thought I would never see the day, or maybe he would say, I knew that I would see the day when 
the NAACP would walk in the front doors figuratively into our church and meet with our senior leaders and would be funding scholarships for NAACP people. And that gives me hope for just continual revelation on the issues that we face today. Um, I believe like you, and maybe it's partly my own father who's had some interaction with our senior leaders that are good men, that are wrestling with these issues, that are open to new direction. It's complex. Um, and that they deeply care about the issues that our youth and all of us care about. And it uh, gives me hope for the future as I continue to follow policy and doctrine today. Um, but I love your invitation just to stay and be part of the journey as we hopefully can do better and make more progress. And, and I don't think either of us are saying we know exactly what's going to happen or um, that Whatever issue it is you're looking at, we're going to have a uh, blacks in the priesthood type revelation. Um, but I think we do believe it's an ongoing restoration and uh, more light and understanding is possible. More thoughts that come to your mind in conclusion, David. And how long has your dad been gone and how old would he be if he were alive? I'm asking you math questions now to the lawyer. <laughs> he would be, uh, he'd be 102. Um, okay, so he was born in and, like 1920 then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, he's been gone um, oh, well, close to 30 years now. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now, um, and this is one of, the, one of the reasons I have so much admiration for you, Richard, is, is navigating some of the LGBT challenges as a society and certainly as a church. Um, maybe I could share a quick story Please. on that issue. Please. Um, I, when I was called as bishop, um, I had, we had a member of the ward who was just a, he was a graduate student, wonderful man. Um, he, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, um, he was in the Army Reserve, been in Iraq, um, just a great person. And, you know, I'm not a person that the Lord speaks to in dreams. I, I, I get revelation law on my feet or in the books that I do in dreams, but there have been a few of those. And... When I was bishop, I had this dream and I, of him, and the, the dream was that he was gay. Wow. And I won't give you the detail of what that was, but, um, and I woke up and I, I said to my wife, I had a weird dream about him going board. And um, I didn't tell her who or what, this was just a weird dream. And I kind of blew it off. And that was probably like Tuesday or Wednesday. And, Sunday rolls around, and he comes up to me after sacrament and says, "Can we meet?" And I said, "Sure, just hang on. I got some other appointments, but just hang on." So he comes in the last one, and he sits down, and he just begins to weep, just profoundly weeping, and um. And the dream came to my mind. And I said to him, I think I know why you're here. And 
And he said, no, you don't. Said, and he just threw tears. And I, and I said, I think you're here because of um, concern, challenges relative to your sexual orientation. And this is like 1990. So this is, you know, 30 years ago. 30 years ago. And, um, and he just looked at me and said, I've never told anybody that. And it was the beginning of a marvelous friendship. Um, he is no longer involved with the church. He has a partner. You would know him if I told his name probably through your ministry. And um, I reconnected with him about three or four years ago through um, Bryce Cook, uh -huh. who had written a paper, and he's one of the vignettes in that paper. Uh -huh. So I reconnected with him, and it's been really marvelous. Some years later, he had moved out of our stake. He was in the neighboring stake here in Rochester, and um, he was asked to come to a disciplinary council. And, you know, this is this is pretty early on in understanding these kinds of issues. And, and he had asked me if I would come and speak on his behalf. And I said, I'd be honored to. And I said, I'm just going to tell him who you are and my experience. And so I go in with this high council. I knew most of the brethren on that high council. Many of them have passed away since then. And I just said, look, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I suspect what the outcome is likely to be, but I want you to know who he is and treat him with compassion and love and fellowship regardless of what the outcome might be. And so I told him the story. And um, what was really interesting is over the, the, the preceding, the, the following, oh, I'd say 10 years, I would run in randomly, run into one of these brethren randomly, sometimes in the temples, some at the Hillcomore pageant, some in town, and probably not all of them, but, but a good number of them. And a couple of them in the interim had had sons who'd come out. Um, one lost a son to suicide. Wow. And all of them that approached me said, um, you know, my heart has really changed since that night. Wow. And um, he said, I remember a lot of the experience that you've had, that you hadn't shared with us. And again, I, I might speculate in the tent with my buddy <laughs> of what we, what we might do, but that's not my call. But I, my call is to love and honor and support. And, and that's what you're doing so much and admiring so much. And that's a tough issue. And it's, it is going to be, but I'm convinced that over time, it, there will be, I don't know what will happen. I think over time we'll see some kinds of changes or whatever. And um, we need to be part of that. We need to be engaged and not, not walking away. 
because we're offended because it's hard. You know, I, I used to have this sort of, I call it a nightmare, but it's, it's really not a nightmare. But I used to think about my ancestors who, you know, for example, I, th I would think about Heber Kimball, who, um, by the way, lived about two miles from where we live right now. Wow. And we actually owned his property for a while. And I, and I, you know, he was known among the brother and even among Brigham as, as having tremendous gifts of the spirit. And I used to have this dream of, um, you know, being confronted with him after this life and, you know, him asking me about, you know, the hard battles that I went through. And I'm like, well, you know, I had to, I had to deal with being a Mormon Democrat or, you know, I, <laughs> I had to deal with this issue or that issue or, you know, and, and I could, and in his dream, he kind of like looks at me and goes, really? That was your struggle? That was your battle? And the result of the dream is I, is I kind of get assigned to this, you know, meeting that drums on for time and all eternity that's just really boring. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I think about, I think about those progenitors and the challenges that they faced intellectually, spiritually, societally. No reason we can't come through it like they did. And uh, we can't walk away. Um, I write little notes of things people say in the segments, David, and that was a great segment. But when that good brother asked you to be at his disciplinary council, and they're called membership councils now, the words you use, I'd be honored to be there. And to me, that's just what Christ would do. It's more and bear and comfort and be with somebody in a really important moment. And, and then the hearts that were changed as part of that. Um, and then your invitation to all of us, we need to be part of that um, so that you... In, kind of inadvertently, I don't think you went into that membership council saying one of the hope, outcomes, I hope, is that hearts change on this issue. I think you just went there to be a friend to this guy in his moment. Yeah. But I think that's an example of what we can do if we stay, is that our voice and our experiences and talking about LGBTQ, if we have LGBTQ family members, humanizing them, talking about their experience, making them real. I think sometimes we talk about LGBTQ people is this different group of people on a different road that somehow poses a threat. But if we talk about them the way you did, as someone you had priesthood responsibility for, someone God cared enough about to give you a dream, the guy that doesn't get very many dreams, um, so that you could be there for this guy when he couldn't quite find the words, um, you were able to open this lifelong friendship now, especially now that you've reconnected and I think that just, I think my invitation for all of us is um, we need to be part of that. And so if you're on the fence about staying or not staying, I, I think we both hope you can stay. Um, and so you can be a part of that and help change hearts on the various issues that are important to you. So that was you a know, terrific I, segment, I, David. It was sort of theoretical, but it was a practical application. I love it. I honor anybody's journey um it saddens me deeply when people walk away and um 
I, but the reality is there is not faith in and of itself is a journey. There's no easy answers in faith. And you, you find, find a faith tradition that doesn't have its skeletons or its hard issues. I mean, every faith tradition has them. And to, to abandon faith, and some people do it, and, you know, I, like I say, I honor that, that walk that they choose to take. But, um, you know, there's, there's nothing that, and I'm, I'm pretty well read. I know the church history pretty well. You know, nobody's going to shock me with a new thing, with some new, you know, travesty of church history. I, I'm pretty well up on all of that. And, but, but I've read a lot of other religious history and every faith tradition on the planet has its challenges. Every great religious leader, you know, you can, you can pick Gandhi, Bonhoeffer, Mother Teresa. I mean, every single one of them, even our, even um, Pope Francis, every single one of them has something in, in their history that, that's a challenge, as all as we all do. That's the human condition, and we ought to get to the point of spiritual maturity where we can accept that humanity in people, because that's where we all are. I love that. Any any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I'm just probably boring people at this point. So, <laughs> I, um, our joint prayers this podcast to be helpful for you. There may things that I didn't pick up in what David shared that are just hit you um, in a way that was needed for you. So I think our joint prayers you'd act on the impressions you feel, um, and also this was not a podcast to cause any of you that aren't Democrats to become Democrats. Um, I think you know that, but if you are in a minor, sort of in a conservative ward where there's a, a minority that are Democrats, that could be opposite where the majority are Democrats, especially if you're in a leadership position. I think you needed anything you can do just to help um, people in a minority political party feel like they belong. Um, their political opinions are valued, authentic, needed, and they shouldn't feel shame for the political party or the opinions they hold. Our leaders have given cover for that. Elder Oaks' talk in particular. I love your shout out to Marlon Jensen. Um, I think I saw a Facebook post of you to dinner, you and your wives together. And um, I love um, his ministry and you recognizing his wonderful ministry in our faith. And he has been um, a tremendous example to me. And I've loved reading and, um, and love his voice. So. Anyway, listeners, this is my friend David Cook um, and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>